Well, good evening. I'm Brandon Mercer. And I'm Joshua Stein. Today is Thursday, December 17th, 2015, and this is episode 7 of Garbage. Okay, on this week's episode, uh, JCS has an update on the touchpad driver that he was writing, and he's also got um, the replacements, or the um, RMA, I guess, for the uh, in-ear headphones that he had. Um, I've got um, a little rant that I need to do about uh, everyone out there doing lightweight web stacks. You're doing it wrong, and I'm calling you out on it right here. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And also, I got a, a video card. And it's probably worth mentioning uh, a little bit about that, and uh, and we'll see where we go from there. Cool. So um, I guess first off, uh, just to update anyone that cares, uh, I got my headphones, my Erin uh, Bluetooth headphones back from Sweden. They uh, scheduled like a pickup with DHL and sent them off and fixed them and sent them back. The whole thing only took uh, about a week or so. Hmm. Um, so I got them back, and the the case that they charge in has been fixed. Actually, well, no, I should say I can see by the serial number on the bottom that they just gave me a different case. So they charge now, and uh, I've been using them pretty much every day. And the weird, like, firmware crash thing that I was complaining about still has has still happened a few times. So I replied to the uh, ticket that I had with them and asked them what that was about. And they said that if you want to run them in mono uh, mode with just one of the ears in you need to keep their app running, the iOS app on your phone, because apparently that has something to do with it. Hmm. So it's, I don't know if it's like the left one uh, gets confused if it can't find the right one after some time and shuts off. I don't know. So they said that um, earlier today. So I'm, uh, I haven't had one of the crashes yet with the app still running in the background in iOS. So anyway, I guess I'll, uh, keep doing that and see if they actually work. And, uh, if not, uh, I guess I'm just screwed. Yeah. Now, did they offer anything else? Like, is that a temporary workaround or are they going to, um, have something a little bit better than just leave the app open? Well, like, uh, cause it doesn't have to be in the foreground so you can still run like your audio player on the phone, but it just like, you can't kill the, the app, the, their app in the background. You just have to leave it there because apparently it, somehow interacts with um, the Bluetooth even in the background, which I guess I didn't... Well, I guess I did know that with uh, iOS because my Pebble watch uh, has to do the same thing. But, um, yeah, I mean, if that's all that it, it requires, then I guess I can I can do that and just uh, make sure that the app is still running in the background. Yeah, so no big deal then, I guess. Yeah. Or worst case, um, I just take the... Uh, the right side earphone out of the charger and put it in my pocket or something. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess that's all I have for the uh, ear and headphones. And shortly after uh, last last week's show, um, I started playing with my trackpad driver again for the, the Samsung laptop. And I was um, running into the issue where I was sending, I was pulling all the data out of ACPI to figure out like what address it's at. Um, and the IRQ and all that stuff, but I would send commands to it and nothing would return. And it did happen to be related to the, uh, the power. So in ACPI, there's a method under the, uh, the I2C like controller device definition that's in there, mm-hmm. um, that you just have to execute and it turns the, uh, the power on to the device. 
that's easy. Yeah. And so like, there's one that you run, um, there's a like PS uh, zero underscore PS zero method that you call to power it on. And then mm-hmm. when you, I guess when you're like going to suspend the laptop or something, you just call the, the other, uh, I think it was like PS three or something like that. That puts it into a low power or suspended mode. Hmm. So yeah, so once I powered the device up, um, I am able to get packets from it back, which was exciting to yeah. finally have that working. Um, and then I figured out all of the kind of uh, auto-conf stuff in uh, the kernel to figure out like where each device is supposed to sit. Yeah. So right now my laptop has a... Uh, it probes all the ACPI stuff, and then it attaches a DWIIC driver. So it's DWIIC0. Um, and that is a... The controller is a um, Synopsys Designware I2C controller. So I am having to write this driver uh, to talk to that controller. So there's a DWIIC0 device that attaches to um, the I2C0 device found out in ACPI. Then underneath that, uh, it attaches an IIC device, which is just like the generic I2C like bus mm-hmm. that normally would probe all of the like sensors and weird things that OpenBSD supports. But since none of those are going to be um, present here, and I need to do a custom probing because it's not actually a probe at all because the devices that are underneath it are defined in ACPI. So when I attach the IIC device, I just pass it a custom like scan um, function pointer so that when IIC attaches, it calls that uh, function, which is back in the DW IIC device. So anyway... Um, so it attaches the IIC bus, the IIC bus goes to scan, and then it calls back to DWIIC, which then pulls the devices out of ACPI that it knows about. And so one of them is the uh, HID device for the trackpad. So it attaches an IHID EV instead, like on USB, with USB um, HID devices, we have UHID EV. Right. And then underneath that is like a mouse or a keyboard or whatever. So I'm basically writing the version of that that talks over IIC because this there's like a generic HID over I2C protocol. So then underneath uh, the IHIDEV device uh, will eventually sit the um, trackpad device. That's awesome. Yeah, so there's like a lot of layers and things that have to be passed around and um, there's like a couple different files that I'm having to write and uh, maintain and figure out where everything needs to go, but it's uh, able to talk to the um, the, tra- the I2C controller and get packets back. And right now I'm working on the HID layer that basically sends a, um, like a HID request over I2C that pulls the um, like device descriptor, mm-hmm. just like it does with USB that says like the vendor, the... Um, model the revision yeah like all the stuff that it supports and then like parses that and then figures out like what to do with it so i'm writing that stuff right now so yeah some some good progress uh since last week yeah that sounds awesome so of course you know as we said last week i'm having to write all this based on looking at the linux driver because i can't get documentation for it and i actually did reach out to synopsis and asked about 
getting some formal documentation because they have it on their website. Like I can find all the product documentation for everything. But then once you click on a link, it like takes you to a login page and you need to have some customer login. So I emailed them and said like, I'm not a customer. I am writing this driver on for the OpenBSD project and it'd be similar to your Linux driver and whatever. Mm -hmm. And they basically just replied and said, um, if you're not a customer, we can't give you anything. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I even like found the name of the PDF that I need because some of the Linux commits like reference this, um, document that I need. So I even like just tried Googling for the document file name, wondering if someone put it up somewhere, even if they weren't supposed to. And I can't find it anywhere. Yeah. But, um, I found some like mailing list posts about somebody writing a driver for this for some other smaller platform and, Somebody on the mail on their mailing list was asking if they could look at the the documentation, and the guy was like, "Sorry, I can't give you anything because I'm under NDA or whatever." So it doesn't look like I'm going to be getting this documentation anytime soon. Yeah, that's no good. Yeah, so I'm stuck trying to figure out what they're doing in the Linux driver that seems overly complicated, and trying to simplify it and then write OpenBSD code to do that. So yeah, that's pretty much. Uh, where I'm at with the trackpad driver for this laptop. And, oh, and I did find out that the um, Dell XPS 13 has the same type of setup where the trackpad is connected over I2C, but the BIOS on that machine actually has like a legacy mode that makes it work with other operating systems because that the Dell XPS 13, they made a developer edition of it that uh, came with uh, Ubuntu on it. Okay. And so out of the box, it just, they didn't, like, I guess the I2C driver wasn't, or the I2C head driver wasn't uh, in the Linux kernel at that time. So the way that it shipped, it would just uh, hit the fallback code and then use the, like, legacy emulation as a normal, like, PS2 mouse and talk to the trackpad that way. Mm -hmm. And there were all kinds of problems with it, and, like, it needed all these BIOS updates. And then from what I've read this new, uh, the I2C head driver in Linux will take over that device on the Dell XPS and like run the, talk to the device in full I2C mode. Mm -hmm. So hopefully this driver that I'm writing will also work on that machine, which will work around the problems that, uh, somebody posted to bugs about where the like mouse, the trackpad would just like lock off all the time. When it was running in compatibility mode. Yeah. And so I told him, um, cause I looked at his like BIOS zero line and I was like, well, you're, you're, you're running a quite old BIOS. So update that first. And he said, okay, now it works. But I get like all these, uh, kernel messages saying that the, um, the port has been like reset and stuff. Yeah. So it, it works. It's just not that great. And it'd be good to, uh, properly support that device. The like native way that it's supposed to over I2C. Yeah. And I think we're probably going to see more and more of those devices too. Yeah, this seems to be uh, where they're headed. Instead of attaching everything internally over USB, they just can attach it over I2C because it uses a lot less power. And mm. then like when you want to suspend the laptop, uh, you don't have to do anything really custom to... Um, whereas like with USB, you have to formally detach the device from the operating system, and then when it resumes, you have to reattach it, mm -hmm. uh, which is actually the problem that I have on the um, the MacBook with the UBCM CP driver, I think it is that I wrote. I can't even remember the name of it. But basically, when uh, it would attach, and then you'd have like X set up with like the Synaptics driver, and then you run like Syn client to do like custom 
settings on the trackpad will when you suspend the laptop and then resume it the UBCM CP driver um, detaches and then reattaches but when it reattaches it has lost all of those custom settings right so like all the um, whatever settings you did with send client would need to be rerun every time you resume and I tried to fix this by like using hot the hot plug device that we have in OpenBSD in the in the um, X server so that it would actually just get notified of those devices and then reattach them properly. Uh, but somebody shot my diff down and said that that wasn't the right way to do it. So <laughs> yeah, I think I've run into similar stuff where um, you know USB is flaky and buggy and you have to put all sorts of delays in all over the place for things to like stabilize. And people are like, why are we doing this? The spec says mm-hmm. this. And then in our USB stack, we have stuff all over there. Like there's a, uh, there's comments in there that say like, Oh, the spec says this, but we have to wait this long because hardware is whatever. Right. And, um, and I think on, in the case that I'm working on right now, like you have to wait even longer than that. And, uh, Somebody was like, oh, th- this has to be like a bug, you know, somewhere. And I, I looked in like the U-boot configuration and they're delaying like 500 milliseconds too when you should be delaying like 100 or something like that. Mm-hmm. So there's got to be a major problem with that piece of hardware and the way it's set up. And again, the account- the drivers have to account for it and it's kind of not the way to do it. Yeah. And I mean, it, it is kind of weird, like attaching physical permanently attached devices over USB just seems kind of weird, but it seems like it was a hack that they had to put in to uh, get all these things to attach on uh, laptops and stuff. Yeah. Well, speaking of hardware, um, I actually went out to Micro Center and um, harassed the salespeople there pretty handily. And um, my my buddy and I were looking at video cards, and I wound up uh, picking up um, uh, one of those Radeon uh, R9-380s. And the reason I was looking for it is because uh, my display port doesn't work on my machine at home unless I like reboot the machine. So I fire up X or I start up the machine, and the, the display port works the first time. But then every time after that, uh, once the monitor goes to sleep, I have to restart the machine in order for it to come back on. Hmm. And and so I don't know why I decided to buy such a, a um, you know hefty um, graphics card, but I did. And then the, I think it was like a day or so later, um, I'm not sure what they're going by now, but Radeon or AMD or ATI or whoever they are <laughs> yeah. decided to go completely open source and all that kind of um, hoopla to get you know better graphics card support in these open source projects and all that kind of stuff. And um, I think that's a good thing, and I and I'm really excited about it, but I. You know, I kind of have a feeling that it was a publicity stunt to get more people to buy their stuff. Yeah. Um, and on a technical uh, level, I, I know that it needs, like, um, Stuart Henderson was saying, like, oh, you need a, a recent version of LLVM, and, um, you know, in order to build their drivers. And, you know, that normally wouldn't be a problem, but, you know, our uh, Zenokara uh, has to be built with the tool chain in base. <laughs> mm-hmm. So we, we don't have, um, the right tool chain to build that stuff. And then, um, you know, the LLVM that we have in ports now is too old. So even if you wanted to fool around with it, you'd have to get a newer version of LLVM, which requires, 
you know, GCC 4.9 to build that, and some lib standard C++, I think, is the other thing that's uh, the big holdup with that. So anyway, maybe it'll get supported, and maybe it'll work. But for right now, um, I can fire up my 4K console and use it. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's not uh, like a frame buffer, right? It's just the text mode? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, okay. so you you only get I mean, yeah, you only get text mode and <laughs> Yeah. Um I think uh I think the driver though that is supposed to support this card is the AMD GPU. And when I was grepping through Zenokara, I saw AMD GPU and I don't know if that was like a complete driver or just a stub for something else or whatever, but I was thinking about trying to plug device IDs in there to see if I could get it to attach and I I've honestly just had a long, stressful uh, week, and I haven't even tried it. So, yeah. Does so? Does it come up in uh, in X in with the Visa driver? Um, I haven't looked closely here to see. I uh, no, it will not start. Okay. Yeah, no, it doesn't. That's weird. Yeah. It it complains loudly about something. Um, yeah, when I tried to start X, it failed miserably so i don't know maybe, it'll, maybe it will be useful sometime but i think uh one of the other things that surprised me is i saw it attaching like the um what is it the azala driver and i'm mm -hmm. like there's a sound card in my video card now yeah <laughs> um and i'm yeah and i guess that's like um happening more frequently now because the hdmi does sound right right and I think they're offloading some of that to some specific part of the graphics card that does sound. I have no idea what on earth is going on there, but I guess that's kind of how things work now. It's been a long time since I've even looked at this stuff. Yeah, I think you can do uh, Ethernet over HDMI too, I think. Yeah, and uh, I think they're even talking about even more stuff in 1.3, um, but I don't know. They're pushing a lot of data through there. <laughs> yeah. So we've talked way too much about web frameworks over the past few weeks. And um, if you guys don't like web frameworks, um, we're with you, or I'm with you. <laughs> um, I saw something today on Lobsters that just really, for, for whatever reason, it just lit me up. And um, uh, it, it was an article that talked about a faster, lighter web page. And so what do I do? But instead of ignoring it, I click on the link and I profile the page load. And uh, I I was thoroughly upset with, I think it was something like 70 requests uh, between the browser and this server. And there was something like several megabytes worth of data. And it took almost three seconds to load. And I said, if this is the guy out there advocating for faster, speedier web pages, I need to rant about this. <laughs> and and it's true because um, I, I started to look at just normal websites that I use on a regular basis, and they're all um, a megabyte, two megabytes, three megabytes, and, you know, several seconds of time to load. And, you know, these people are coming up with these um, uh, CSS frameworks or toolkits or n you name it, whatever you want to name it. Um, and they're and they're loading fonts. They're loading like seven different WAF or WAF2 fonts or true type font or whatever. And they're like, guys, this is mobile ready. You know, you can use this on your tablet. You can use this on your phone. And I'm like, 
sitting there on my phone and I'm looking at uh, the data usage and it was 23 megabits from about 10 minutes of, of web browsing. I thought this is just stupid. Um, these, these style sheets and these JavaScript frameworks are not mobile ready. This, um, you being able to display this, the web page on a mobile device with a compromised experience with 70 round trips and several megabytes of data is not a good mobile experience. Um, and this really made me mad because, um, you know, the developers say, well, we don't want to have to develop a custom page um, for the browser experience and then another custom page for the mobile experience. And, and so what you get is a compromise in both areas. And, and right now it's just not cutting it for me. Um, and so what I did, I, I mean, we've been talking about the little JavaScript stuff that I've been working on. I started whittling down all the things that I needed versus the things that were included in material. Uh, like the the style sheets and JavaScript and all that kind of stuff. And I started to explore how I could do the compiling for my Riot.js stuff that I was doing on the server one time and then embedding that into the page. And right now I have um, a, a really, really um, lightweight web framework, 65 KB for my homepage, which includes a navigation bar and some content and some CSS that makes the page look halfway reasonable. Um, and there's no fonts because that's silly. And it looks good on a mobile browser just because it's, it's designed um, properly to work in a mobile browser. And, and there is one round trip because it gets the page and I inlined the CSS and the JavaScript. Now, the other part about this is when you click on a uh, another page or a link, it navigates by going and getting the page from the server. And so you're only pulling down another, you know, one or two KB per additional page. And then it draws that back into the page that it already has. So the navigation doesn't change, the head doesn't change, the footer doesn't change, all that kind of stuff. And, you know... It, it just seems so ridiculous to me that someone would go on a, on a, on a blog or post something on the web. This is the second one for a lighter, faster web. And that's the kind of rubbish they push. Now, my, my site, I'll, I will say that before I did all this trimming and paring down of this stuff, it was, uh, I checked 1.3 megabytes of JavaScript and CSS and HTML. And after I did all this, I said 65 KB. And it looks exactly the same with the exception of the font. Well, that's the whole thing, man. You got to have them shiny <laughs> fonts that make all your text hard to read. I know. Roboto versus Helvetic is such a drastic difference yeah. that uh, it drives the people, the, 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 you know, the graphics designer people absolutely insane. But uh, I haven't even bothered to go back onto Lobsters and see how much flack I've caught for, for ranting about that. But it's totally... Um, it, you know, we, we can't keep saying things, um, as like that, as if they're acceptable or as, ex as, or I guess we also can't keep accepting that as the growing trend. You know, um, we talked about the high latency in a mobile device, you know, um, however many years ago, well, it's going to take, you know, the ping times on a mobile phone or a second or 300 milliseconds or whatever. And you're making 70 round trips. 
And, you know, those people probably tested that out on their local machine running the phone right there. And you just can't do that. That's unacceptable. So there's my rant. I'm going to stop picking on things. Um, I'm here to tell you we can do better. And we can do better and still achieve the same results. And if you guys are working in web applications and you want to have uh, full-featured web applications that still look nice, I challenge you to do it in a way that is actually lightweight, that is under 100 KB. Let's see you do that. And um, in a way that um, you know your servers aren't getting taxed uh, serving up a bunch of rubbish static content for fonts and stuff that you just don't even need. I, uh, I just checked your post on lobsters. You didn't get any replies. You <laughs> did get one upvote. All right. Well, apparently I'm in a minority here in a sinking ship, which is bad news for the rest of us. <laughs> well, is he saying smaller, faster website in comparison to whatever bloated thing he was using before? That's because possible. maybe his three seconds to do 74 requests is better than the crap that he was using before, which yeah. is still not good, but I don't know. I guess maybe you need to uh, make a post that says even smaller, even faster websites and <laughs> one-up this guy. I, you know, I'm I'm probably not very fair on people. I really am not. Uh, I just, I, I think I look at things on a very general basis and I say, uh, and, you know, like, the barometric pressure is just not right. You need to do better. And, you know, he says, but you don't understand. I went, you know, from something a lot worse to something a lot better. And and I'm all about marginal gains and all that kind of stuff. So uh, if you wrote that blog post and you listen to our podcast, um, tell me. I want to hear about it. Um, we, we should talk about it because I think I think you would like to see what I've been working on. And I would love to see you improve even further um, and, and evangelize that and get more people writing smaller web applications that, you know, accomplish what they need, solve the problem, and aren't hogging up tons and tons of useless data. True. Well, I think it's like maybe these things start small, but then people don't know how to say no. So then <laughs> they just, like, keep adding all these features that somebody else needed. Yeah. Because I guess if you, like, reject someone's pull request, you're seen as, like, an asshole. Right. Which I don't really understand. Um, just a weird example. I have this tab open because I just saw that this uh, new web server called Caddy uh, has built-in automatic HTTPS using uh, Let's Encrypt that mm -hmm. just came out. So you can run this um, or like install this uh, web server and it will automatically encrypt your website which sounds neat in theory, but then like I went to their features page to see what this server actually does. And it's, I guess the premise is that it was uh, an HTTP2 uh, web server, like mm -hmm. one of the first that supported HTTP2. And I'm looking at the features that it has, and one of them is serve markdown documents rendered on the fly as HTML. Why hmm. would you want that in your web server? No. I'm guessing that like this started as a, a as a basic http2 server and then people were like oh no let's just add this one little thing and now it does uh let's encrypt i guess that's uh it uses that to uh get you an ssl certificate and that's all built in which seems kind of scary and weird because <laughs> i don't want to upgrade my web server 
when Let's Encrypt needs an update, right? Right, exactly. I want to run like that old version of Nginx that does everything fine, and I don't need to touch it for a year at a time. Yeah, exactly. And and I think um, the the more, I don't know, the trend in web servers these days is to have more and more features so that, you know, you have some, what it's like it's a market share for an open source project. Yeah. Um, and, and I just don't see it. And, and I know that people do things in all sorts of different ways uh, with their web applications. And I know that there's some new things coming out. Um, and new doesn't always mean better. Um, but maybe some of the new things are better, so we have to adopt them. But let's adopt them in a way that makes sense. And let's do it the right way the first time because, you know, we spend too much time fixing bugs and it costs us so much more to fix bugs than it does to spend a little extra time up front, you know, do, getting it right the first try. Yeah. And conversely, something old doesn't mean that it's bad. Like, if it hasn't been updated in a while, like, if it has reached a point in its life cycle that, like, it does everything that it needs to do, they don't need to keep putting out new releases all the time. The project isn't dead. You can still use it. It still compiles. You can still do whatever you needed to do with it. Mm -hmm. You're just using a version that came out six or six months or 12 months ago. Like, who cares? You don't need to be... I don't understand that mentality. It's like this software that does this one tiny thing hasn't been updated in a while. It must be dead. Right. And and I think, so, you know, you, you saying that struck a chord with me. I have... um I have someone doing an internship with me and, uh, we're, we're doing test cases right now. And, you know, we're, we're testing every possible thing we can possibly find. And it's amazing how much better in a very short amount of time, how much better the code and the product gets just from writing test cases. Mm -hmm. I mean, what winds up happening when you're writing code is you do the same pattern over and over again. I got to push this button. We're going to see, run this process and we're going to see what happens. Oh my gosh, it finally works. I'm done. But when you write a test case, you know, in, in our case, anyhow, we're getting an HTML page as a result sheet that shows us which code paths are tested. And oh, look, we're not, we're not testing if we get an error here. So I said, okay, write it, write a test case that, um, it can't read the file and see what happens when we trigger that error. Well, then this happens. Oh, you know what? We were missing a return statement. So you know what happens? The whole thing tries to keep executing. And, right. and there's all these little things, you know, like, oh, we couldn't open a file? Well, then we should, probably shouldn't try and parse the header. You know, <laughs> and, it, and it sounds silly, but honestly, you just don't even do that stuff when you're, um, you know, not writing test cases, when you're, you know, just trying to write some code and get it working. Mm-hmm. It's a long, painful process. And, you know, you and I have both been there. Like, you're talking about this driver. <laughs> Just getting it working is a lot of work. It's a lot of effort. But, you know, at that point, if you take a little bit of extra time and write some tests around it, um, you know, maybe you find stuff in your code or maybe you, you know, realize little things that you could make better. And it, it goes so much further. And I think when you talk about those um, software applications that have been around for a long time and aren't getting updated... Well, they've been tested. They've been tested in the real world. They've been tested with unit tests. They've been tested in, in many other ways. And, and that's how they came to that maturity. Um, and, and I think that, you know, I'd like to see more new software get there faster because we should know that cycle, you know, the real world cycle. We should know the, the regression test cycle. We should know all that type of stuff by now. Mm -hmm. I have, uh, I guess, some unconventional... Uh 
thoughts on testing with software. Uh, but maybe we could do a, a whole episode about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd love to hear it for sure. Yeah, I mean, just the gist of it is like, I like tests for certain types of code, mm-hmm. but this like dogma that you need to have like 100% code or test coverage or like test driven development and like that your code is shit if it doesn't have uh, tests for like every little method or something like that. Mm hmm. And then, like, the way that some people write or have to refactor code so that they can write a test for it when there didn't need to be a test for it in the first place. Uh, And then the code that they changed it to is now worse because it's harder to understand. And it has to, like, do all these weird things so that it can be tested properly when the test wasn't even needed and now the code's worse. But anyway, we uh, we can talk about that on another show. Yeah, and and I like that. I like where you're going with that. I guess it's um, it's popular in the Ruby community to uh, do that kind of testing. But from what I've seen in like the Go community, the the tests that or the testing that they do um, seems like the a good idea because it's kind of like baked into the into the code. Well, I mean, I I like doing test driven development. I I like it when. Um, I can like write a test according to my business requirements and then implement some stuff and then uh, the tests pass and it works. But mm-hmm. let, let's face it, you can't solve every problem by trying to use the same tool to fix it. And <clears throat> so testing doesn't fix every single software development problem that you have. And, you know, you can't keep trying to apply the same pattern over and over again in every case and expect 100% success. So there's cases where it works great and there's cases where, you know, you shouldn't do it. So, yeah. I mean, and, and I think, you know, sometimes people just get too hung up on design pattern and test only this and every other thing. And it, we get lost in that. Yeah. So good. Um, was there anything else you wanted to talk about tonight? Uh, I guess that's it. Um, for me, at least. Did you have anything else? Yeah, not really. Um, if folks were curious, we did have uh, someone comment on the, the solar stuff I was working on, and I appreciate you letting me know that. I think that's awesome. Um, but I got some batteries for my solar setup, um, and they are, if, every, if anyone cares, they're Panasonic cells, they're unprotected, and they're uh, 3,400 milliamp hours, and uh, no typical 18650-style cell. Um I found a really good deal on them, and I had ordered some stuff from the, the that particular vendor before, and I was happy with what I got, so I ordered a bunch more. And um, I started to, you know, take a look at uh, some other stuff, too, with the solar. Um, my LCD, um, I have a touchscreen, and I have uh, just a regular little, um, I think it's 320 by 280 LCD on there, and I started to... Uh, get that stuff set up so I could start to interface with my charge controller and uh, log some data out to the LCD and uh, that kind of stuff. And um, yeah, so the solar thing's kind of still being worked on. You asked me how long it was going to take. I have no idea. But <laughs> I ordered a little board from uh, Adafruit. And um, basically the, the idea behind the board is that you can charge a lithium battery and also have a load side at the same time. But here's the caveat. There's a little tiny chip on here that um, 
has what's called a pass-through feature. So the, the load isn't coming from the battery while it's charging. The load is coming from the um, supply side. So you plug in your solar panel into this thing, you plug in your battery to this thing, and you plug in your load on the load side. And if you have um, an amp coming in, and you're trying to charge the battery, and you're drawing an amp out the other side, the chip knows to um, use the pass-through rather than charging the battery so that you don't hurt the cell. And I thought, that sounds like a really good proof of concept. I should buy one of those and see how it works and check out the chip and uh, see what I can come up with. And does it scale to 150 cells? Probably not, but <laughs> something similar probably would. Um, there, are, there are chips that do pass through for more than one cell, so you could balance a six-cell pack and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, that's that's what I did. I don't really want to spend too much more time talking about it because... Um, there's not really too much interesting stuff going on with it. Cool. Well, um, then I guess that's it for this episode. Um, and I guess for the year, uh, we are not going to have a show, uh, we're not going to record a show next week and we'll be back in the new year. Yeah, for sure. Looking forward to, uh, having, uh, or ringing in the new year with you guys. Hopefully we'll, uh, have some more exciting stuff to talk about. Um, I know my workload is going to be a little bit better after the first of the year. So anyway, uh, reach out to us. Uh, let us know if you uh, enjoy what we're talking about. Let us know if you don't like what we're talking about. Uh, if you have suggestions for the show, um, you can contact us on the website, garbage.fm. Um, and you can get a hold of us on Twitter as well. Um, there's a, uh, what's the handle on Twitter? Uh, we are just Garbage FM on Twitter, and you can subscribe to our show's RSS feed on our website and find us in iTunes and your podcast app and all that other crap. Uh, Brandon, where can people find you on the internet? Yeah, uh, you can hit me up on Twitter. Uh, I'm at no Mercy Mod with a K-N-O-W. And I am on the web at jcs.org and on Twitter at jcs.org.